Salwe. Hello friends, and welcome to this, the first episode of the Curiosulus podcast. My name is Harry Lidgley, and I'm joined by fellow Cambridge classicist and school friend, Mr. Will Randall. Salwate, people. I hope there's several of you listening. <laughs> yeah, awkward if it's only a, only a Salwe. Yeah. Anyway, the aim of our little podcast is to complement the Curiosalus blog, which is essentially a foray into a variety of classical curiosities, the weird and wonderful, surprising, bizarre, and generally interesting from antiquity. So in that vein, we're going to be doing a similar thing on our podcast, as well as uh, dipping into some more mainstream military history, <laughs> because of course. boys will be boys. Exactly. <laughs> And it's exciting. Um, so in, uh, in our different episodes, the first half will take different formats. Uh, this, in some weeks, will be a biography or a discussion of a larger general topic. Um, but in the second half, we will always treat you to a battle of the month. Yeah. Our favourite clashes, but also some of the lesser known, yet still historically significant battles from antiquity. For our first episode, though, we are going to introduce a section which we've decided to call First Cohort. Now, we've called it First Cohort because as of the reforms of Marius in 107 BC to the Roman army, the cohort uh, replaced a maniple as the basic tactical unit of the Roman army, and ten cohorts made up a full legion, the first cohort being the creme de la creme. So our first cohort of whichever subject we so please will be the very best that we can conjure up from antiquity. And for this first week, our first cohort will be of Roman emperors. And later on, in the second half of the episode, we will talk to you about the excellent bloodbath that was Tutor. Well, not so excellent for the Roman dudes. But... Not so excellent for the Romans, but uh, we'll get to that. So um, beginning our first cohort of Roman emperors, it would be remiss of us not to rattle through some of the key players, the generally acknowledged great emperors of Rome. But because this is the Curiosalus podcast, our main focus will be on some of the emperors who perhaps don't enjoy quite so much of the limelight as such emperors, as Augustus, as the first Roman emperor, the first princeps. He successfully oversaw a transition to a system whereby basically he was the sole man in complete power and he established a succession. Tiberius followed on from him. He was generally regarded as the gold standard for all of his successors and presided over the beginning of an era of relative peace, the Pax Romana, and um, he was he was pretty good. Yeah, he was. We do like him. Good old gas. <laughs> Another of the emperors who uh, we should touch on, Vespasian. He came in at the end of the fairly tumultuous year of the four emperors, AD 69. He was luckily the fourth emperor, so he stayed around for a little longer. He established the Flavian dynasty, uh, which lasted for, I think, 27 years. And that ended with his second son, Domitian's murder in AD 96. But Vespasian himself was a pretty great guy. He uh, had a good sense of humour, and he joked on his deathbed that he thought he was becoming a god. It's basically a mockery of the imperial cult. 
so yeah, he uh, his son Domitian had a nasty end, but he was followed by some pretty great guys. Yes. Well, I think uh, you know a little bit about these dudes. Indeed. So, I'm sure most classicists would have heard of the term the Five Good Emperors. I'm going to refrain from talking about Nerva, which Lidge will be talking about later. But the second of them was Trajan, um, who was declared... Trajan? Do you not say Trajan? I say Trajan, personally. Trajan. Do you say Trajan? Well, you clearly say Trajan. I'd say Trajan. I know, yeah, I never know. I say Trajan, I don't know why, but I just do. So... I think you just sound even more posh when you say Trajan. Okay, I'll take that as a compliment. But, sure. Um, Carry on. Yes. Sorry. So, Let's talk about Trajan. Trajan, or Trajan, uh, was declared as the Optimus Princeps by the Senate. Um, he's basically, when you think about Roman military might and expansionism, imperialism, this was when the Roman Empire reached its peak. He had a good, a good campaign against the Parthians and managed to take their capital, Ctesiphon, I think it's how it's pronounced. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, he was, he was a pretty... Was, was, am I right in thinking that the Empire had its largest extent yeah, under trade? essentially. This is where, if you want to draw a map of the Roman Empire, this is the period where you, you draw it under. But also as changes were notable at home, archaeologically we can still see Trajan's column uh, in Rome. Um, and yeah, on the whole, he's a pretty good guy, bit of a philanthropist, but also uh, did a lot of good militarily and I think deserves his, his title of Optimus Princeps, the best Princeps uh, by the Senate. Yeah, there's perhaps. also that blessing from uh, that was bestowed on later emperors, which was... Yes. May you be luckier than Augustus and better than Trajan. Exactly. So he is he is the second gold standard after Augustus, you might say. Yeah. And then his successor, Hadrian, something us Brits know because of his wall. It's a very nice wall, isn't he, it? it? I think that sums up what you can say about Hadrian. While Trajan made the greatest extensions to the empire, Hadrian certainly pursued a policy of consolidation with walls like Hadrian's Wall, which set the boundary between... Roman prison and the Picts to the north. He great beard too. Yes, he also set a fashion for beards. Yeah, he was a pogonophile. I think that's the word. So yeah, and then from then on, obviously you see all emperors sporting beards. So he was another. He was another good dude in terms of imperialism and expansionism. Pursued a different policy to Trajan, but nevertheless, definitely earned the title of good emperor. Then we have um, Antoninus Pius, who I think is. Quite underrated. I was tempted to put him in my categories later, but he does. He does. He does. Nevertheless, have the title of the good emperor. He basically. So while Hadrian toured the empire quite a lot, he basically supposedly went to every province. I think Hadrian did. Not sure whether that's exactly true, but he has this has his reputation for visiting all the provinces and conducting all administrative affairs by himself. Antoninus Pius pursued this title of the Italian person who engaged with the Senate. He stayed in Italy his whole reign. You know, was it his whole reign? Yeah, supposedly presented himself as being a not a Republican, but one of the old class, the old boys who Italy is Rome. He stayed there for a long time. Took an interest in the city itself. And then lastly, we have Marcus Aurelius, who I'm sure is probably the most famous emperor among the, good, the five good emperors to the non-classes among us for his, his role in Gladiator, which did a pretty good job, and his philosophical discussions, such as the meditations. Stoic emperor, he faced a lot of difficulties, actually. Some pesky Germans caused a bit of trouble on the borders, 
but he so he fought some defensive wars, which is the first defensive wars that the Empire had to fight for quite a while. But nevertheless, he did a pretty good job on that front. And I think his philosophy speaks for itself in terms of being a pretty good guy. And he was the last of the five good emperors. And sadly, it all went downhill from there. As it the film Gladiator, well, it takes certain liberties in terms of accuracy. But um, I think the gist that they're trying to portray is pretty pretty good on the whole. Yeah. Yeah. So there we are, the good emperors. I'm just going to quickly offer you some of the later emperors who are generally acknowledged as pretty great. First of whom is Diocletian. He inherited the empire when it was teetering in the throes of the third century crisis, and he followed six emperors in the last 10 years. But he was on the throne for 20 years, which brought a nice period of stability, security, sorted out the economy to a fair degree, boosted up the military quite a lot. So he did a good job. And then he retired to his palace, which now forms most of the city of Split in Croatia, where he grew cabbages. I think he was the first emperor to retire willingly. So he did a great job. He did. And then he sat in his palace and probably got very upset when he saw his tetrarchy system fall apart. And Roman Empire lapsed back into civil war. But Constantine the Great is the next emperor that I might mention. He emerged victorious from all these civil wars after Diocletian and was known for various things, but most for promoting Christianity. And he was baptised on his deathbed, which was a serious contrast to Diocletian, whose persecution of Christians was, I think, the last such effort. Constantine went a long way to sort out the financial system and rectify the military. So it definitely is worth mention. And then finally, Justinian, who's around much later. He was a Roman emperor of the Eastern Empire. And his very ambitious attempt to restore the empire is the subject of an excellent book, Count Belisarius by Robert Graves. Would recommend. Definitely recommend. Uh, That actually depicts Justinian as a rather jealous and... Yeah. distrustful and disloyal and generally irritating sort but he did do a pretty good job at trying to reunify the empire and his great general Belisarius reconquered a lot of the western empire bits of Africa, Italy, Sicily even parts of Spain so those are the guys that usually hog a lot of the attention as some of the good Roman emperors you could also shoehorn in maybe Tiberius Claudius, perhaps Septimius Severus some have done yeah Interesting takes. Controversial. Indeed. But because, as we said, this is the Curiosulus podcast, we thought we'd treat you to some of the more obscure types. And I'm going to kick off with the Emperor Titus. He was the eldest son of Vespasian, and he ruled for just two years, from AD 79 to 81. And people were apparently quite sceptical of him when he first turned up. In fact, Suetonius records a rumour or opinion that he would prove to be a second Nero. Was he the first, like, son of an emperor um, to inherit? Well, as in, let's, let's, let's forget about the adopted stuff. Oh, I see. Because um, he was direct son of Vespasian, wasn't he? So He was. Yes. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. All the others have been adopted. Yeah, and this this time it actually turned out relatively well. Mm. 
rather than Commodus succeeding yes. Marcus Aurelius, which is a complete car crash. Yeah. But Titus, despite the fact that he might have been a second Nero, turned out to be a pretty good chap. The first thing he did was basically halt the treason trials, which had been terrorising Rome for several years, especially under Tiberius and then Caligula and Nero. He banished the informers, who basically, it had basically become a profession to just inform on people and get all these people in trouble in the treason trials. So no one liked them, and Titus got rid of that straight away, which was nice. He also appears to be a bit of a man of the people. He would admit people to his new bathhouse when he was there, which seems like an unusual thing to do. I can't really imagine taking a bath with the Queen, <laughs> no. to be honest. Her inviting you to come and share what yeah. <laughs> and all to pee. Would, would seem a little strange, yeah. but uh, Titus didn't seem too uh, perturbed by that. He was also a keen supporter of uh, the games and his favourite chariot racing team, and he would apparently argue, but in a friendly way, with members of the crowd. So he seemed to get on all right with the plebs. He was also pretty good on the battlefield, perhaps best commemorated by the Arch of Titus, which is still there and is very splendid, although I haven't been to see it myself. Shame on you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm a really you, poor like, classicist, and I haven't that, been to Rome yet. That's shocking. I've been to Athens twice, but... That's not good enough. You got No, I know. I, I really do need to go to Rome. Anyway, so yes, when I go and see the Arch of Titus, I'll be able to see these lovely scenes. Well, not if you're Jewish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mention that. I, yeah. I just know the only thing I know about Titus is he just crushed the Jews. He, yeah, he did crush the Jewish rebellion, which I think he did with his dad, Vespasian. Yeah, and pre-emperor. So, so, so you can see on the arch them running off with the menorah and other bits yeah. and bobs from the temple at Jerusalem. So I'm sure the Romans absolutely loved it, but not, not, not so, so much the, the Jews. Jews. Yeah. What else did he do? Ah, oh, yeah. Titus's reign, although it was very short, had a bunch of disasters. Which weren't his fault. Oh, it was um, volcanoes. Yes. Yes. Volcanoes. So Vesuvius yes. went pop in AD 79, which I'm sure Titus was thrilled to be dealing with in the first few months of his reign. But he yeah. seemed to have a pretty competent response and he sent a bunch of ex-consuls to deal with it. And he said that the property of those people who died in the eruption with no heirs would be distributed around and uh, would help to alleviate the stricken cities. There was also a big fire at Rome, which was rather unfortunate. Suetonius says that his only comment on the fire at Rome was, this has ruined me, which is a very different reaction to Nero. Yeah. Who supposedly sat by the side of it, playing his lyre and rejoicing at the fact that he would be able to build his monstrous palace on the ashes. So Tiberius had a rather nicer approach to dealing with the fire at Rome. There was also a big plague. I don't know if he dealt with that well, but it was unfortunate. Yeah. Anyway, at the end of his reign, as he was dying, I'm not sure until... What did he die of? I think yeah. it must have been some sort of illness. Does it, yeah. he, he, it must he wasn't have been particularly young. old. Anyway, he was on his way out, and according to Cassius Dio, he said, I have made but one grave mistake. And then he died, so we don't really know what oh, he died. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for the big payoff there. Yeah, he just left us on that cliffhanger. Some people are inclined to believe as Cassius Dio might suggest, that his big regret was not killing Domitian when he knew that he'd been openly plotting against him. And some people thought that Domitian might have actually got rid of him. And yeah, I think he might have just been a bit concerned that he left the empire in the hands of Domitian. 
according well, to that us. Well, that is pretty harsh. Yeah, just because just because you got Damnatio. Yeah, you did get the old Damnatio Memoriae. So, anyway, Titus, in my opinion, was a pretty sensible chap, and like his father Vespasian, he got on well with just about everyone. So he makes it into my first cohort of pretty good emperors. And then after his uh, brother Domitian did his thing and got assassinated, that was followed by Nerva. Now, Nerva, as my next emperor of choice, is often missed out, really. Um, Suetonius yeah. doesn't make any mention of him. Which, Did you not? Yeah, no mention of him. I read the 12th seat, I didn't... Yeah. Really? yeah, it doesn't appear. That might just be because... Suetonius was writing under the Nerva Antonine dynasty, so he might not have wanted to suggest that the current rulers basically owed their position to Domitian's murder, which I think Nerva was aware of, but probably didn't actually have anything to do with. It yeah. might look bad if Suetonius implicated him. It sets precedent, yeah. So he, he sort of gets slightly ignored sometimes, partly because he was only there for 15 months. He ruled from 96 to 98 and died in office. He was relatively old. But he did a pretty good job even before he was emperor. He was an advisor to Nero, in which capacity he helped to uncover conspiracy in AD 65, which must have been of considerable help as he was awarded triumphal honours, which is strange because that's normally just for military successes. Mm. He was also awarded the right to have his statue throughout the palace, which is probably quite nice. Would you like a statue? I would. yourself? Yeah, I'll be you happy. I, I, yeah. yeah. What sort of pose do you think you'd have? You know, you could be a prima porter, or um, you could be a... Well, I don't know. I think that the, the right hand upwards has been kind of appropriated by dictators. Yeah. I think maybe. I'd have to be a bit more reserved. Right. Still, you know, big and majestic, but not so fascistical. Yes. Probably yeah. good. Would you go for a sort of athletic perfection of the Greeks to represent Yes, perhaps. I think your physical They could they can perhaps exaggerate perhaps. my physical features a tad <laughs> and I wouldn't yes. complain. Perhaps to the gentleman's region, which is always rather modest. Well let's not uh, you know we don't have to go there. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, we'll see. Yeah. I'd probably go horseback. Like uh, I think it's Marcus Aurelius as a fantastic Yes, The one in Rome. Him. Which you yeah. wouldn't have seen because you haven't. Which I have not yet seen. That is that is good. I think it's quite. It looks more imposing being on it's horseback. It's just quite majestic. More, it's more imperial. Yeah. Like, you look like you have purpose. You're going somewhere. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we've got that one sorted. Yeah. Anyway, back to back to our man Nerva. Yeah. Who who was possibly horseback on his statues? Who knows? Probably not. I don't think he was a very military man. So Domitian was assassinated by some palace people. It's a bit hazy. And then the Senate proclaimed Nerva. And he had a short reign, but he was very attractive to the senatorial classes and, again, seemed like quite a nice bloke. He was more moderate than some of the typically bad emperors and appealed particularly to the senatorial classes, probably because he didn't persecute them as Domitian did, which I'm sure went a long way to yeah, fostering nice relations. seems pretty straightforward. Yeah. He didn't have much time to really build much. He built some big granaries, which I suppose is useful. 
He also built the Forum Transitorium, which Domitian started, but then he just stamped his name on, which is a bit cheeky. It's a classic. But, yeah. You know, uh, that's a classic. Yeah. We'll just say it is. But the Flavian Palace, he did actually stamp the name Publicae Ides on, or House of the People. So he, he unlike Domitian, who sat in his vast pile, he declared it public property and just took up resident in Vespasian's old villa and some gardens, which is Seems nice, a bit more mm. moderate, humble. Not quite, not quite near as Domisaria. Not quite, which probably isn't a bad thing. Yeah. Um, so it it all seems fairly average for Nerva, but I think what is actually the crowning success of his reign is adopting Trajan. He <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he set up this precedent for adopting a successor and heir, which essentially led to. Almost a hundred years of prosperity and general awesomeness for Rome. Pax. And he might have been put under a bit of pressure by the Praetorians to adopt someone, especially someone popular with the military, but he certainly chose the right guy. Yeah. And then he died peacefully in office, which I think is always a fairly useful indicator of someone who isn't too offensive. Yeah. So I think... Well done in general, Nerva, for setting up Rome and leaving it in fairly good hands. The last one of my three that I would like to talk about was on the throne for 86 days. Which doesn't really sound like a good yes, start. I'm interested, I'm interested to see where you're going to take this, because as someone who knows very little about Persinax, I'm, I'm very interested to see why he would classify as a, a good well, curiosity. Well, let me opera. tell you about Pertinax. Let me quote the Oxford Classical Dictionary for you. In spite of his humble start, his phenomenal career had won him unrivaled respect. This refers largely to his endeavours before he became emperor, and it's pretty meteoric, his rise. He was the son of a freedman, and he became a teacher. Oh, wow. And then he decided he wanted to do something a bit more exciting. So through patronage, he got himself commissioned as an officer of a cohort, did a pretty good job in Parthia, then was appointed a military tribune in Britain, then on the Danube, then he became procurator of Dacia, then he was really good in some wars against some Germans, then he became consul, Wait, then he was I... governor. Pause, pause, pause. I need to hold up and take this in. What time period? We're only it? halfway. So... It was uh, was but, it this this like the year of the five emperors, wasn't it? Yeah, so Persinax was, like was the one... first of the five emperors, one nine three. One nine three, okay. So we're in, in the sort of twenty years or so leading up to that. Yeah. So he's done Britain, the Danube, Dacia, Germans. He's become consul. Then he's governor of Moesia, which is in the Balkans. Then he's governor of Dacia. Then Syria. Then Britain, where he got a bit in trouble with the legions because he was trying to impose discipline. And they were a bit unruly and dodgy. So he gave that up and then became prefect of the Alimenta, which basically was supporting orphan children in Italy, which is quite a nice thing to be in charge of. Did that for a couple of years. Then he was governor of Africa. Then he was urban prefect. Then he had another consulship along with Commodus. And then, after all that, when Commodus was assassinated, he was proclaimed emperor. So before he's even emperor, he's just a pretty epic guy. Yeah, he travelled around a lot by the sounds of it. He's had so much experience. He's been just about everywhere in the empire. 
everyone seems to love him. He's got universal respect, and then he becomes emperor, which he initially declined, as I suppose all good he senatorial. Yes, initially. Well, who offered it? As in, is uh, it possible the to Senate, offer? I think. Well, it's probably one of those. He probably declined. He said, it. "Oh no, I shouldn't. I shouldn't." But oh, actually, yes, please. Yeah. Although he was probably in a bit of a tricky situation because he inherited an empty treasury, which is not what you want. Silly Commodus. Yeah. Commodus had rather enjoyed his time and he had squandered the imperial treasury. So Pertinax inherited a mere one million sesterces, which is not very much for the imperial fund which is quite tricky. So he immediately set about selling everything that Commodus owned, which included statues, weapons, horses, furniture, basically anything that he could think of that was utterly pointless and would raise him some cash. And with that, he paid the army. One of the characteristics of the succession was that the military expected a donative, basically. So if you didn't pay them loads of money... You were screwed. Yeah, it's never going to work. Especially the Praetorians. <laughs> Indeed, especially the Praetorians. Which was tricky for Pertinax because he only had one million sesterces to play with. Yeah. However, he was so clever with organising the finances that he managed to pay each Praetorian 12,000 denarii as well as 100 denarii to everyone in Rome, which is quite good going. Yeah, quite efficient. Yeah, very efficient. And he set about reorganising the economy he didn't really have much time for military well, yeah. action. In, so, well, how does this? How does these eighty-six days end? Well, the trouble is, he didn't pay them. He didn't pay the military enough. enough. Yeah, they're so pesky. Oh. Yeah, and part of his trouble was that he said in a speech to the Senate that despite having absolutely no money, he'd managed to pay each man of the Praetorians twenty thousand, which was the same as. Marcus Aurelius had done, but that wasn't true. He'd only paid them 12,000, so a lot of them got really angry. And then basically the Praetorians said, right, we've had enough. So they marched into the palace, and poor old Pertinax is there, having turned around the empire in, like, three months. They march into the palace and say, right, we've had enough. And rather than running away, he went down to meet them and almost convinced them. But just as he was winning them all over, some guy at the back threw a spear at him. Oh, for God's sake. That rather set them off. And then he was I hate the Praetorians so much. Yeah. I always thought they were really cool. But then, no. When you actually read some history books, like they just... They just cause all sorts of trouble in Rome. Yeah, so, so that was Pertinax. Which is... He's just a real shame, because... He was so experienced, he was great at admin, he turned around the imperial finances within 86 days. He was very good on the battlefield, even if he didn't manage to prove that whilst he was emperor. And such a capable guy probably could have made a really epic emperor. Mm. But he just tried to do a bit too much too quickly and didn't manage to please the Praetorians. Probably a case of promising too much and... Yeah, he also tried to reimpose discipline, because apparently in the time of Commodus it was normal for the Praetorians to be able to just wander around and hit people with axes, <laughs> which which seems Again, Praetorians, mad. they're just, honestly... Firstly, as if they could get away with that in the first place, 
And then when Personax says, right, stop that, they get really upset. Totally bizarre. Anyway, that's Personax. He should have been great, but he didn't have the chance. Shame. What a shame. Right, what have you got for us? So I've got another three dudes. My first is um, Majorian. And I don't know about you, but I, I, you know, up until a couple of weeks ago, I didn't know anything about this, this guy. I don't think I could tell you um, a single fact about no. Majorian. So to put him in context, he was, this was the very last days of the West. He ruled from 457 to 461. And he had the classic career of like being a good general in the Roman army. And the previous emperor, Arbitus, got deposed in 457. Um, and he was placed on the throne. And But what really drew my attention to Majorian is Edward Gibbon's characterization of him, which I think Get would be the best, the best epitaph I've ever seen, I think. So to quote, he says, Majorian presents the welcome discovery of a great and heroic character such as sometimes arise in a degenerate age to vindicate the honour of the human species. Now, if that's not a good epitaph, I don't know what it is. A glowing report from Gibbon. Yes, Majorian I think it's fantastic. Right? And Procopius, an ancient source, said he surpassed in every virtue all who have ever been emperors of the Romans. Perhaps quite. Wow. Yeah. Exactly. But nevertheless, you know, he got some good reviews. And, you know, he, so he's only, he's only in charge for four years. But in the short time, he came to power. And the West wasn't in the best of places, I think it's fair to say. He essentially mm-hmm. controlled Italy, Dalmatia, and then some, some of Northern Gaul. But, you know, the barbarians at this point had already run wild into Africa, Spain, and Southern Gaul. And he is basically the last emperor of the West to make, a, make an actual effort to try and reconquer some of the territories that Rome had lost. So... First, he set about taking back southern Gaul against the Visigoths. So he defeated uh, King Theodoric II at the Battle of... I don't know how to pronounce this. Is it Aralate or Aralate? Um, I'm sure someone... someone it, yeah. But that was a massive battle, and he pulled it off. Um, so he essentially, by that battle, managed to retake southern Gaul. And he didn't stop there. He pressed southwards to Spain and defeated the Goths, and reduced them to federate status immediately. So, you can tell this guy knew, you know, 2,000 years down the line, people are going to stare at maps and think, oh, how do I judge this empire? Or oh, they, they had a large territory to control. He basically took back France and Spain. Yeah, and I mean, that's a good effort, because the uh, yeah. tribal groups are really running all over the place. Oh, yeah, like, period, it was a so. disaster. And this is even third century crisis. This is even worse. This is fifth century. Like it's going pretty badly. The, you know, the empire, the West was done. Give it fifteen years, and it was done. Full stop. So he he had a pretty good last hurrah. But that wasn't all. We kind of mentioned Justinian earlier, and his what was so impressive about him and Belisarius. But through him, Justinian was he managed to retake northern Africa, which in the late empire, Africa was the. You know, the, it was the province that you needed. It, yeah. it was so rich. Yeah. yeah. So much money. So that was the centrepiece of his foreign policy. And once Majoran had realised that Africa was where he needed to get to, he's going to need a lot of resources to be able to take it back. And at this point, so the Vandals had taken Africa and Mauritania. And the Vandal king, Gaysma, was so actually terrified because of... Majorian's success in France and Spain, that he started 
pursuing a scorched earth policy um, in Mauritania so that Madrona's forces couldn't land. So this guy's reputation in his own time, you know, says enough. And he amassed a fleet of 300 ships for this African campaign. But sadly, what perhaps doesn't elevate him to the well-known emperors is the Vandals managed to find some traitors um, oh amongst amongst his camp and basically torched his ships. So he sailed to New Carthage, I think it was, in Spain and was ready to launch his, his army over to Africa. But the Vandals got in, set torch to his ships, which essentially put an end to his grand ideas to take back Africa, which is a massive shame because yeah, um, shame. if he did, he certainly had the momentum. And the Vandals, you know, it's, the, the guys from his actions of pursuing a scorched earth policy certainly shows how much he feared Majoran's expertise in the military field. Yeah. Um, so he's definitely a, a military... Emperor. Yes, he's very much in the four years he reigned, put in a really good effort of returning the empire to its borders. And you know, if you're if you're restoring Spain and Gaul, that's re-establishing the border along the Rhine that existed for hundreds of years beforehand. And although he couldn't take back Africa, it's still isolated. So the Vandals couldn't necessarily you know run across and stage raids. That that would have required a massive expedition from their part that they weren't capable of staging. But in terms of his end, this dude, Rissima, who's half... It's similar to Arminius, actually, who we will obviously talk about later. He was half German, I think, half Roman. And he was essentially played the kingmaker in these years. So he was the one who deposed Arbitus, Majoran's predecessor, and put Majoran on the throne. And they were friends, I think, after Majoran's plans to take Africa had failed through treachery. Rissima had had enough and... On Majoran's return back to Italy, he was surrounded and imprisoned and later executed, which is a shame because it would have been interesting. We always talk about, you know, hypothetical what ifs in history and what if he'd managed to take back Africa. I guess Justinian had managed to do it a hundred years or so later. And but it didn't really work out. Yeah, it didn't really yeah. work. But never that, nevertheless, perhaps if he'd stopped the rot earlier, then it wouldn't have you know, the history of the West wouldn't have panned out in the way that it did. But Perhaps. I respect him a lot for the way he... He was given a very bad situation and did a pretty good he tried good his best. He really did try his best. And if it wasn't for... It wasn't even his fault necessarily. If it wasn't some pesky traitors in Spain who hadn't accepted yeah. some vandal bribes, who knows how history would have turned out otherwise. But on the whole, I think he's a pretty good dude and it was a good effort you know, even, it doesn't even matter what he did that epitaph given is pretty <laughs> impressive so yeah yeah that that immediately bumped him up in my expectations of him definitely so then my last two i've gone quite byzantine because i don't know as a classist we never got taught about much well personally i never got taught about much beyond the second century ad but byzantine's pretty lacking which is technically a continuation of the Roman Empire. Oh, it certainly is. Yes, I got quite interested. And this, this guy, Basil the Second, good name, <laughs> really good name. I do love the name Basil. So, yes, he was also nicknamed the Bulgar Slayer, so he, he really does have names going for him. Wow. To put this in perspective, he was in charge as the senior Byzantine emperor for almost 50 years, so from 976 to 1025. So this is quite a long time later. But basically, when he came to power, the Bulgarians were a bit of a menace. And over the course of 50 years, continually campaigned 
in essentially every direction. So his his one of these known as the Bulgaskar is because that's where he really has his claim to fame. Yeah. So he continually campaigned against them, and at the Battle of Cladion in ten fourteen, uh, he crushed a Bulgarian army led by their king Samuel. And over the four years after that, as a result of the fallout from that, he eradicated the threat of the Bulgarians who had run over past the Danube into Thrace and Greece. And this, for those of you who don't know, the, the Bulgarians got as far as kind of Larissa, Thessaly, for the real classes among you. They really got into Greece proper. Yeah. Um, they were a real menace, threatening Constantinople. And if they didn't have the Theodosian walls, it would have been a real difficulty. But he pushed them back all the way to the Danube, which for you geographers out there is clearly a good natural boundary which had been we have a very diverse listenership oh of of course course. so that is clearly a natural boundary that you'd want to establish and kind of set a pathway for the next couple of years of stability they could you know sit tight and relax on that border front he also um had some campaigns against the the Carganates to the north and uh, had some campaigns against the Fatimids to the east and the Kingdom of Georgia. So that by the time his reign had finished, this was basically the Byzantine Empire at its peak in the high Middle Ages from controlling the whole of Greece, Thrace um, and the Balkans and also all of Turkey all the way to modern day Armenia and a bit of the Levant. So he basically pushed back on a lot of decay that had happened over the last couple of hundred years. And one other key thing which i think is what clinched it for me in terms of him being a very curiosalist emperor was he gave his i think it's his sister sister anna uh, in marriage to vladimir the first of the kiev so up in ukraine and because of this she was quite reluctant but he went along with it because it's the middle ages and you marry who you're told that's just what but happened he converted to christianity this kievan guy vladimir and as a result he sent a bunch of Norsemen down south, which established what we now know as the Varangian God. These guys are so cool. <laughs> you know, reading about do they, do they meddle in politics too much as well? No. So as far as in, I'm sure they might have, but as far as I'm aware, they're a much, much more sensible version of the Praetorians, because the Praetorians are obviously, well, for the most part, you know, Roman citizens. Whereas the Varangians pride themselves on being Norsemen. So Harold Hardrada famously was part of the Varangian God, did his, did his gap year in Constantinople, really? fought a little bit, and then headed back, won some battles. Then at the end of his career, thought, oh, you know, I'll try and invade England. Failed, but that's another story. That yeah, story. so it was Basil II who instituted the start of the Varangians, which I think is pretty cool. And they went on to guard Byzantine emperors for the next couple of hundred years. In a much better way that the Praetorians did, because screw the Praetorians. Yeah, maybe a bit I, more discipline. Yes, I think so. So I think he's another guy who, in terms of his influence within Rome, being Constantinople, but also beyond establishing borders and spreading Roman influence, I think of the medieval Byzantine emperors, he must be up there, if not first place, from what I've read. My praise for Basil. He, he is a good dude. Well done, Basil. Yes. And then my last one, Alexius. The first, Comnenus. Well, I also know absolutely nothing about. Yeah, so I first found out about him because I did the Crusades for my A-level history. So I came into contact with him. So he was in charge from 1081 to 1118. 
and the Crusades were 1095 till 1099. So there had been a bit of a decline since Basil's days. And in 1071, there was a massive battle with the Muslims called Manzikert, which the Byzantines had completely shagged and it all went horribly wrong. And as a result, Greece was still fine and safe because of Basil's efforts with the Bulgars, but the Muslims had overrun most of Turkey. The Byzantines managed to keep the, the coastal cities on the west, but the heartland in the middle, like Ankara, the modern-day capital, that was all Turkish Muslim territory. And Alexius saw this, came to power, and was like, oh, this is a bit of a predicament. So to start with, he actually didn't face with the Muslims the Norman pest Robert Giscard, the fox, in southern Italy. That's a good epithet. There's a long rivalry between Normans and Byzantines, but he was causing a bit of trouble. And he actually invaded Greece, but he eventually died because he was quite old. And Alexius bribed the Holy Roman Empire at the time to help him out and invade southern Italy. So he essentially took back southern Italy and re-established that as Byzantine territory for quite a while. And then switched his focus to the east and kind of tried to stop the rot. And then a lot of people discuss whether he invited the Crusades in because he wrote to Pope Urban II... And lots of people speculate that it was just, I want a special task force of 500 to 1,000 specially trained warriors, similar to like the Varangians, to come over and help. But lots of people speculate that Urban took this as a excuse to start the Crusades because he had trouble with the Holy Roman Empire in the investiture controversy. So he took it as an excuse to showcase his own authority and say, right, everyone, every king and prince from the West... I want you to all march to Jerusalem and take it. Which they did, surprisingly. It's actually a remarkable feat. But Alexius made them swear fealty on arrival at Constantinople before they entered hostile territory. And while a lot of them didn't follow up, he actually was quite insistent. He, for the first part, he provided a lot of cooperation on their way through Turkey, which was hostile land. So the siege of Nicaea was a great showcase of Eastern and Western Christianity helping each other out. And then Antioch, is a great siege. I would recommend all 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 military history lovers to to research the siege of Antioch. Literally, Maybe we need make a first it, cohort yeah, of sieges. Definitely, I'd also be so keen. You can make like a mini TV series out of the siege of Antioch. It would be superb. But um, Bohemond, which is, who is a Norman guy, claimed the city for himself when the Crusaders took it, and having a history of personal animosity with the Byzantines didn't really pay much attention to his oath of fealty to Alexius. But Alexius actually managed to enforce this oath. And because of, in part because of the Crusader's success, which I'm not going to necessarily attribute to Alexius, but he was he was a good diplomatic player and knew what was going on and re-established Byzantine control further east towards Turkey, uh, or the eastern reaches of Turkey, rather. So again... He, similar to Basil, he kind of re-established a lot of borders that had been lost beforehand. And this kind of period of history is known as the Komnenian Restoration. I think his daughter actually wrote an epic poem in the style of the Iliad about her dad's achievements, which I've never read, but would love to read. I think she put it to ancient Greek verse. I'm pretty sure it still exists. I don't know why it's not more common, unless she's a rubbish writer, but I doubt that if it's survived but on the whole it seems like a pretty pretty cool guy and for the next what 300 and so 400 years all the subsequent Byzantine emperors were related to him either you know by lineage or through marriage um so he was kind of 
another one of those guys who we talked about Augustus and Trajan being the the figureheads who you can pay yourself to but he for me is another one who set a legacy that lasted for quite a long time and a lot of his successors looked up to him right in a way that was similar to Augustus Trajan and their like so yeah he is my final and third curiosus underrated good emperor very nice very underrated I'd never come across him or Basil yes good old Basil do you have a wild card I yeah I, I've yes. got a little wild card that I'd like to throw in the mix I think this is unfair because I wasn't told this was a possibility but yeah well so so this is a slightly controversial one and and it will require a very short explanation okay my wild card is the Emperor Nero <laughs> okay yeah, ex- explanation is required. Now, just to be clear, this is not in reference to Nero's entire reign, because I think he certainly was bad, at least for parts of it. <laughs> just want to clarify before your career goes horribly wrong. <laughs> yes. Just need to make sure I don't completely ruin my reputation as a vaguely academic individual. But he probably had a really good period of his reign, which is referred to as the Quinquennium, which is likely a five-year period, and scholars have been debating about when it actually was in his reign. Some suggest the start, some in the middle, and some at the end. But this all stems from a passage in Aurelius Victor, who was writing in the 4th century. And let me just quote from him. Nevertheless, in the spite of his youth, for five years he was so effective, especially in improving the city, that Trajan we know was a pretty good guy that Trajan with justice often declared that all other emperors fell behind Nero's five years so you might wonder why was Trajan saying that Nero was such a great guy Aurelius Victor here isn't completely anomalous in suggesting that Nero was actually quite good for a period Josephus offers a defense as well a bit so most sources are terribly hostile to Nero written from the senatorial elite yeah. who didn't get on with Nero and were forced to sit through his musical performances and other sorts of things. So they're deeply hostile. But Josephus says that many historians have written the story of Nero, of whom some, because they were well treated by him, have out of gratitude been careless of truth, while others from hatred and enmity towards him have so shamelessly and recklessly reveled in falsehoods as to merit censure. So, we have the suggestion that a bunch of sources, super, super negative, but also that some were equally positive. So, he seems to have been about as divisive as Trump in terms of the... Yeah, it depends who you ask, essentially. And... And then COVID came along and ruined his presidency. Yeah, pretty much. So, for Nero, that was the fire of Rome. Yeah. Or, or you know, or the whole host of other things like murdering his mum and, yeah, you know, murdering he, he did Seneca. Some other bad things. Yeah. But this quinquennium of his possibly went so well because of his advisors. Mm. If you're in the camp that suggests this quinquennium was at the start of his reign, his advisors Seneca and Burrus basically did all of the decision making, and probably did a fairly good job. There was also nothing really happening at the start of his reign, so Nero wasn't wasn't really tested. Yeah. He couldn't fail militarily and he basically just didn't do much which is possibly why it wasn't so well because other people were actually in charge 
And then when he died, there was widespread rejoicing, but there were also a lot of people, according to Suetonius, who mm. would lay flowers on his grave and make statues of him. Um, so I, really... there was, I, I did a module on that, and there was a guy in Parthia who was pretending to be Nero. Yeah, like exactly. Ten years so this, older. Is, this is part of the Nero Redivivus, or Nero yeah. Reborn myth, and pretenders cropped up for a very long time, including into the 5th century, when the belief still persisted that <laughs> Nero would come back as the Antichrist. To persecute so, some Christians. Yeah. So there, there was this weird popular belief that he would come back and some people just really loved him. So I think for at least a Maybe period, Greeks, because he did free Greece from all taxation, I think, and because he loved performing and all that. Yeah, Eastern people seem to have been more fond of him. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it was the Romans proper who we disapproved, but the Greeks had a lot of time for him. Yeah, they certainly enjoyed his musical performances and things. And yeah. He loved going to Athens. And Which is also probably not surprising, around. given the later authors who probably lived in Greece and Asia Minor and wrote in Greek, that mm. they were fans. Yeah. So anyway, there we are. That's just a little, a little interesting diversion into the fact that Nero might not have been completely dreadful at least for the entirety of its reign. Yeah. So, there we are. Okay, it's now time for us to move on to the first of our battles of the month. And for our first epic encounter, inspired by the recent Netflix abomination. Well, I think it's harsh. It was good up to a point. Inspired by the recent Netflix adaptation, we have the battle of the Teutoburg Forest. It's AD 9, Quintilius Varus with his three Roman legions are deep in Germanic territory and ambushed by a surprisingly effective coalition of Germanic tribes under the leadership of Arminius. Three legions of the Roman army are destroyed. Now, the first thing I'd like to say, if I may begin, is that the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest is actually a pretty inaccurate label for this conflict. It's not really a conventional battle, and it's not really in the Teutoburg Forest, which I discovered Ooh. in doing my research. We shouldn't really say it's a battle, because this was not one stereotypical pitch battle, two large armies standing in a field and running at each other and hacking each other to pieces. This is a drawn-out series of skirmishes and engagements across the course of about three or four days as the Roman column retreated heading westwards and the Germans basically picked them off until they finally annihilated them after several days of these little engagements and excavations have revealed battle debris across about 25 kilometers or so as the column moved through this part of Germany. So it was happening over a large swathe of Germanic country and happened over a long time. And also, it's not really in the Teutoburg Forest. Many people assume that it was and give it this label because Tacitus uses the phrase Saltus Teutobergiensis. Now, Saltus can be translated as a forest or a woodland, but it can also be translated as an awful lot of other things, like a narrow pass, a ravine, a mountain valley various other things and the Teutoburg Forest wasn't even a name 
until the 19th century when Kaiser yeah, William lots, I. Lots of stuff happened. Yeah, and he was he decided to make a, a very nationalistic part of Germany basically by renaming the Osning range of hills the Teutoburg Forest. The battle site is actually near a place called Kalkreza. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that terribly poorly. A for effort. Yeah, thanks. But it's 60 miles north of Detmold, where there's the, uh, I don't know if you know that huge monument of Arminius. Yes, I was going to talk about that later. It's a massive statue, which is where it had previously thought to take place, and that's in what is understood to be the Tewsbury Forest now. Yeah, so this long battle corridor wasn't really in the forest. It was rather on the march westward from the Roman summer quarters to the winter quarters, and it was in this natural bottleneck, basically, between the Calcreza Hill and the excellently named Great Bog to the north. So you had this hill on the south and this bog to the north, and a bottleneck which was about six kilometres wide, six kilometres long, sorry, and one kilometre wide, and it was just really swampy, basically. You could get round it either at the foot of the hill or close to the bog. And this middle area is really marshy, high water table, generally impassable. So it's not actually, it wouldn't have been a really dense primeval forest that you might always assume the Romans staggering about in, but actually just a big swamp, basically. And for that reason, I think the Latin description, the Latin title, the Cladis Variana. Yeah. Bavarian disaster is probably the best name. More suitable. And when we decided to do Teutoburg, we were equally stumped by what sources actually recount the battle. Yes, I don't actually know. I mean, my sources are total war, which isn't the most reliable of sources. Yes, that's quite right. There are four main sources, it turns out. Valerius Paterculus, Chapel Florus, Cassius Dio, Tacitus. Cassius Dyers is probably the most detailed, even though he is writing quite a long time after. Mm. Valerius Paterculus offers this really tantalising remark. The details of this terrible calamity I shall endeavour to set forth, as others have done, in my larger work. So everything we get from Valerius Paterculus is evidently not everything he knew. Yeah. And he wrote it down in some larger work. Which we don't have. Don't know what that was. How sad. Which is great. Anyway, these these guys will crop up as we go through uh, the discussion a bit more. So the main site that we have in the archaeological record is a place called Oberesch, which I'm sure is also a very poor pronunciation. Which is at the bottom of this Calcreza hill, and that's where most of the Roman artifacts have been found. And they were found quite recently, actually, in 1987, and until mm. then. Some 700 locations have been suggested for the site of the battle. But a guy, Tony Clun, good old Tony, who was a major in the Royal British Tank Regiment, actually, in the British Army. He was stationed out there, amateur archaeologist, and he came across a bunch of Roman coins, which were dated to the right period, and excavations since then have likely found the battle site. All sorts of paraphernalia have been found, over 5,000 fragments of Roman military equipment, but also all the other bits and bobs. So because this was an army retreating from its summer quarters to its winter quarters, they took everything with them. That included all the wagons and all the medics and slaves, tradesmen and the armourers and everyone, which is why all sorts of random bits and bobs have been dug up. Disappointingly, only one gladius sword fragment has been recovered. Yeah, that's quite a low yield. Excitingly, though, 
in September, a pretty complete set of Lorica segmentata, that really stereotypical nice. Roman armour, yeah. was uh, recovered from the site, which is quite cool. But until then, nothing had really been found, and that's because the Germans basically systematically stripped the dead of everything of value. So German. <laughs> Just yeah. being so efficient. <laughs> yeah, we were, exactly. Uh, and and they were able to do that basically because they were the victors in their own territory. So they just nabbed everything that was valuable. A couple of really cool bits that have been found are firstly a rampart, which was a couple of metres tall and ran for about 400 metres. And essentially the Germans hid behind them. 400 metres? Yeah, 400 metre rampart, which was constructed by the Germans for the ambush. And they could basically just nip out, skirmish and attack the Romans and then hide behind the wall again. So on one side, the Romans had this massive hill, and then on the other side was the bog, and at the, and at the foot of the hill was this rampart. So they were really hemmed in and had a really bad time of it. And there's this big concentration of artefacts in front of the wall, and basically none behind it. So it's pretty apparent that the Romans tried to get over this wall, but completely mm. failed and all died, which is quite interesting. Another cool discovery is a load of bones which you might expect from a battlefield yes um, but principally what's interesting is the pit containing bones now i don't know how well you know your tacitus but he records germanicus going out to the battle site in ad 15 in his retaliatory war basically and yeah. they they go to the battle site and bury in mass graves the bones of their fallen comrades. These are probably those graves, which is quite interesting that we actually have a, a match-up between mm. the literary evidence and the archaeological record, which I thought was quite neat. Yeah. Quite hard to miss, too, archaeologically. A massive pit. Yeah, lots of bones. Yeah. Anyway, so there we have it. Lots of interesting finds on the battlefield. Now that we know where it is. Yes, yeah, so in terms of immediate impact in Rome afterwards. As you said earlier, the Romans referred to it as the Clades Variana, the Varian disaster, which is perhaps a more accurate um, description of the battle. And it's interesting because Varus was quite a big dog beforehand within Rome. He was consul, yes, he was consul in 13 BC. um, And when Agrippa died, actually, Varus was one of the men to give a eulogy at his funeral alongside Tiberius. So... Him and Tiberius were were good mates, and Tiberius actually faced quite a lot of criticism afterwards because he was the one who recommended Varus as the governor of Germania, and Tiberius in the aftermath essentially had to sacrifice his friend to save his own career. And also, supposedly, I'm not so sure about this, but many people speculate that Varus had been one of the figures on the Arapakis, who's since been chipped away and rubbed off, which would suggest he's quite an integral part of Roman society under um, Augustus. Now, I'm not one to confirm or deny whether that's true or not, but if he was, it shows he's very important. And even if he wasn't, the fact that people are attributing whatever's, you know, this chipped away face as being, oh, that could be Varus, shows that he is quite important. And we all know how Augustus reacted. (laughs) Um, Banging his head against the wall, shouting, Quinctilius Varus, give me back my legions. Classic line. Um, which Gibbon, Gibbon comments upon and says it's one of the few times a normally stoic ruler lost his composure. Which is understandable, 
if you've lost three legions. Yeah, I mean, um, it was a serious threat to. Oh, it was massive. It was absolutely wasn't. massive. I think one of the reasons why it was so big was because Tiberius at the time was dealing with the Illyrian revolt. So half of all legions across the empire were being employed in Illyria to deal with this revolt, which shows how huge it was. And when you've got three on the side protecting Germania and wiped out, you know, that's... Yeah, it's 10% bit, of the a bit of a crisis. army just destroyed. Yeah, a bit of a crisis. Yeah. Um, so the legions, were, the legions were 17 and 19 and 18. But 17 and 19 in particular were permanently disbanded forever as, you know, honour to the disaster. 18 was briefly um, remade under Nero, but Vespasian thought, no, we're not, we're not continuing with this. So... Um, all the legions were essentially permanently retired forevermore in memory of the disaster. And then supposedly a couple of decades later, similar to Germanicus's raids into Germany, a general under Claudius called Pomponius Secundus rescued a few POWs, supposedly. And there are stories from Tacitus where they recount the, the horrors that they experienced to arouse pity amongst the Roman populace, which is one of the few, I guess oral witnesses that were available to the Romans at that time. Yeah, I think it's fair to say the Romans took this pretty heavy. The Germans, on the other hand, I can't speak for the Germans at the time, but we do know that Arminius, he... So he died only, I think it was 12 years later, in AD 21, by opponents with his own tribe who felt he was becoming too powerful, which is a bit of a sad end for a guy who caused so much trouble. His brother, Flavus, was also raised as a Roman... And he actually stayed loyal with Rome um, and fought against uh, Arminius under Germanicus at the Battle of Edistaviso. And then Arminius also fought against another Marcomanni, I think it's the tribe he belonged to, a king called Maraboduus, who was also tended to stay loyal to Rome. I think, despite Arminius... Yeah, that's right, because after Teutoburg, I think Arminius Um, sent Varus' head to that Marcomanni chief. But he was like, no, yeah. I'm not having that. And he just yes. sent it off to Rome. No, he didn't. He didn't. So I think there is a mix of the Romans doing a pretty good job of trying to Romanize Germania and say, oh, stick with us and we'll help you out. Which suggests that Arminius did a pretty good job of rallying such a big force. But at the same time, he had, his job wasn't done when he crushed it at Teutoburg. He, yeah, also, as we see in Barbarians, he married Fisnelda, but her own dad... Sergestes was pro-Roman, as barbarians made out, um, which, again, shows that there wasn't actually perhaps as much anti-Roman sentiment amongst the German tribes as we think because of Teutoburg. But the Germans, many centuries or millennia down the line, certainly used Teutoburg as an excuse to propagate some good old nationalism. So Martin Luther, that, that Protestant, he supposedly invented the name Hermann the German, for Arminius and used him as a... Because if you think about it, his fight against Catholicism was actually a fight against Rome because the papacy is based in Rome. So some things do come full circle. So he's a German, Protestant German um, in North Germany who's fighting against some, you know, ruler in Rome who's saying, oh, you should do this, you should do that, blah, blah, blah. And he really ran with that. And in the 19th century, a lot of nationalist movements, you mentioned that statue earlier, which was started... I think, in the early 9th century, but wasn't finished until 1870s, 80s, I think during the Franco-Prussian War, when Prussia was really motorising, and Germany was a thing. 
But yeah, the Germans weren't afraid to use Teutoburg as, as an example of, oh, you know, we Germans have always been a thing. That's perhaps debatable, given a lot of the not actual anti-German sentiment, as we've discussed. But, um, you know, history is always there to be used by whoever wants to use it, for the better or for the worse. Yeah, and I guess that perhaps leads us back into a discussion on Indeed. barbarians. So you you said it yeah, was bad so, so this is at a, the start. It came out in October, I think, this uh, Netflix series, six episodes. Yeah. Builds up to the battle. And there are certainly good bits, um, but I, I was... Why, why don't we talk about the good yeah. bits first, actually? One of the things I liked was that the Romans speak in Latin, which I thought was, a, you know... That was a, amazing as a classist. And yeah. From what I could make out, I'm not at all fluent in Latin, but it did actually sound like they were saying pretty relevant things. Um, mm. So that was quite good, and it, it captured the, the cultural divide, I suppose, between Germanic peoples and, and the Romans quite neatly. And, yeah, just quite cool, speaking yeah. in Latin. In general... It was, I'm sure Netflix had thrown a lot of money at it, and it was quite well put together. It was visually exciting. The battle, which even though was hopeless, yeah. was still quite <laughs> exciting to watch. No plot at all, but some nice visuals. Exactly. And, and you know, across those six episodes, I was still hooked, despite the fact that I was constantly nitpicking as a, yeah. as a classicist. But I'm, I'm sure to most people who aren't as pedantic as we are. No. It will be an would exciting spectacle in the league of I still, gladiator. I still feel like the, ba- yeah, the battle was still quite cringe and it just lasted for a long time but it didn't need to and it wasn't advancing the plot at all. But I so, guess let the people see what they want to see. The battle is my main uh, Yeah, well that that was the main issue. doubt. It was like anticlimactic. They it had quite a lot of good build-up. Anticlimactic. Yeah, the build-up was good, the battle was rubbish. So, yeah. as I mentioned, the Battle of Teutoburg, or rather the Cladis Variana, lasted for three days. There's a bit in Cassius Dio where he says, they were still advancing when the fourth day dawned, and again a heavy downpour and violent wind assailed them, etc., etc. So the Romans were there for days, trudging through swampland, woodland, and they were surrounded... They were exhausted, sleepless, horrific conditions. You just don't get any of that sense. No, um, it's all over rather quickly. It happens in about 10 or 15 minutes. Arminius eyes up Varus, he just kills himself instantly, and then that's it. Game over. Yeah, whereas we know from the sources that on the first night, Varus followed military protocol and set up a fortified camp, yeah. and that they kept advancing... And you just don't get any of that sense. Also, just the setting of the battle seemed quite the wrong. The fire, the fire, I had massive... I was so frustrated. Yeah. Like, no way is there going to be a fire breaking out in the middle of a, a clearing it, with it the Roman armies marching. Yeah. Especially as we know the conditions were so... Yes, wet poor. and marshy. It was meant to be a marsh, and it was hammering with rain for several days. I think they would have struggled to get such an exciting fire going. Yeah. But also just where the battle happened. So the Calcreza site is this sort of marshy plain with a wooded hill on one side and this vast bog on the other, whereas in the Netflix series they seem to be marching 
I think I counted 24 ranks abreast through a convenient fire break. What, what looks like yeah. a fire break in this woodland. And it's a bit muddy. And when it starts raining halfway through the battle, it does get more muddy. But it's definitely not a swamp. No, far from it. It's a bit disappointing. And there's no sense of all the extra baggage that caused so much carnage for the Romans. You know, all the, yeah. all the wagons and the, the women and all the children and medics and all that sort of thing. None of those are there, which is which could have been a detail included to add to the general carnage of the scene. What else? They also miss out Augustus. Yeah. There is no mention anywhere of this famous... Because they have the flashbacks to Arminus' youth in Rome with a younger him and a younger Varus, but they never mention... Yeah, they never have... it's, not, it's not even the fact they don't share him. They never mention him at all, yeah. I'm pretty sure. We have no idea what happened in Rome, which I suppose could be a good starting point for a sequel if they made a, yeah. a second series. But I, you know, they'd have to start doing But you would have thought you'd get the, the famous... Quintilivari. <laughs> Rede Legionis. It's a shame. It was good, but, I mean, we can't too, we can't be too fancy in what we want, but... Yeah. I read a, a New York Times interview with one of the writers, and his answer to the question of historical accuracy was, it's not a history lesson we're making entertainment. So I suppose it's fair that they acknowledge that yeah. that's what they were doing. But I still feel, I mean, maybe that's just us being classist, but I still feel like the first five episodes were more entertaining than the battle, which was, the battle was also the most historically inaccurate part. Yeah. And I think even if they did make it historically accurate, you could so make that really entertaining. If, yeah. you, if you've got a sense of the psychological challenge of trudging through a swamp because they never really days. they never really put you in Varus's shoes once the battle happened it was all from the point of view of Arminius of the Germans of the good guys there was never there was never any cut to Varus oh my god we're under attack what do I do he just instantly melted it all just happened a bit too yeah. quickly and a bit yeah. too easily really essentially but also at the same time they just showed a lot of, like 20 minutes of just dudes stabbing each other that wasn't contributing anything um, yeah yeah. Bit of a mess. Hey-ho. Hey-ho. Here's to more classical Netflix series. I doubt receiving many too soon. But... Yeah, I, th- I think we should be historical advisors to Netflix. Oh, and yeah. And we could... I love that. Make some really great episodes. They should definitely do a mini-series on the Second Punic War. I've been saying this, <laughs> saying this for ages. It would be fantastic. The classical world is... It offers a great Potential. wealth of Netflix... Because they, they did, HBO and the BBC did that series Rome, which I still need to watch. And they did two series of it, but they cancelled it. Because it was, they still got a lot of views, but it was so expensive. So they thought, yeah. we'll stop while we're ahead. But, Sad. yeah. Anyway, yeah, so that's that's Tutorberg for you folks. The great destruction of three Roman legions. The downfall of Varus. He actually has quite a good legacy. I was um, looking on the Google Maps at Calcreza, just to have a look to see what it looked like. And there is a golf club nearby. <laughs> no way. <laughs> called Golf Club Varus, which I'm sure he would have been thrilled to learn. That Germans are just taking during the legacy. I'm sure it's a, a great experience there. You can get a week's pass for 59 euros if anyone's interested. Mm. I'm going and playing golf where Varus died. So there you have it. Tutorberg. Cheeseburg.
there is our selection of a first cohort of Roman emperors and a little dip into the calamity at Teutoburg. I hope you've enjoyed our little ramble through these various topics and that you would be interested to join us next time as we discuss something else. Something. Which we haven't decided yet. Leave some comments but, and see what we want to discuss. Yeah, leave comments, all of our listeners. And um, we'll find something curious enough to look into. Maybe a special guest or two. Oh, a special guest. That would be exciting. Well, how, how did the Romans say goodbye? Do you know? I, I was literally thinking that as we started yeah, doing this. This is one of those things how you learn lots of obscure Latin for like random stuff, but you never learn anything conversational. Is there a Greek for... I've got no idea. Let me Google it quickly. Um, Google it. Latin for goodbye. Oh, Wale. Is it Wale? Wale? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. V-A-L-E. Literally, be well. Oh, okay. Wale or Walete. See if there's Greek. Oh, there's... Okay, no. <laughs> oh, there's Cairo. But, no. Cairo, okay. Well, let's go with Walete. Wale, Walete. Walete, omnes. Walete.